0: following is a presentation of Artisan Church in Rochester, New York. Well, I do bring you greetings from Community of the Savior, where Doug Cullum is the senior pastor. And um, I really thank uh, your pastor, Pastor Austin, for opening his pulpit and inviting me to come and share with you today. Um, I really, truly, I want Pastor uh, Austin to know I've been very well welcomed. He listens to this tape. And I want to thank everyone again, and I pray, I ask for your prayers. Um, I'm continuing with the series that Pastor Austin um, started, the series on speaking of God. And today I'll be looking at God as a reconciler. If you'd like to be able to look at the scriptures that I'm kind of going through today, it's Ephesians 2, um, 14 to 18. It's 2 Corinthians 5 and Colossians one twenty. And this morning I'd like to speak from the topic, God's Dilemma. God's Dilemma. When speaking of God with people, most often the image that I hear is one in which God is austere or cold or unengaged in human affairs, and untouched by the human condition. I remember my sister inviting me to go out with her sister and her friends, and we went to a local diner, and I was sitting there, I was cracking jokes, I was having fun, and there was one friend that was just sitting there, just staring at me. And the evening continued, we continued to eat and have fun, and to laugh, but she just continued to just stare at me. And then finally, it's like she just couldn't take it anymore. And she said, I don't understand. You're smiling. I said, yes, yes, I, I smile. <laughs> but, but, but you're laughing. And I said, yes, when, when I hear funny things, I do laugh. But you're making jokes. You're making jokes and having joy. I said, yes, but your sister told me you're a Christian. (laughs) Ah, there we go. And especially my sister had told her I was a minister. I really did know what she was talking about when she was asking the question. Because sometimes before I became a Christian, I thought the same things. I thought the same things about Christians and about their God. In fact, a 2010 poll of Americans revealed that only 22% of the population saw God as benevolent and engaged in the world. 28% of the population saw God as engaged but very judgmental. 24% saw God as distant. God set the world in motion, and then that's it. Disengaged. And 21% saw God as overly and severely critical and removed, judgmental, critical, distant, removed, disengaged. That's 73% of America, including Christians, speaking of God. On the other hand, another survey done in the same year found that a large majority of Americans, 59%, believe that Jesus gets personal in our lives. Going so far as to feel our pain, to share in our suffering, 21% believes that Jesus is aware of people's pain and suffering, but they're not sure if he cares or shares in their suffering. So I found that interesting here on the one hand when it comes to God, speaking of God, the Father. People see a person who's disengaged and critical. But when they think of Jesus, they see someone who relates to them. But they're both God. When it comes to speaking of God in particular then, The use of metaphors is a critical teaching tool. Metaphors help us understand what is unfamiliar and what's unknown about an entity or an object. In this case, God, in God's character, is not very well known compared to the character of Jesus. By using a word or phrase ordinarily and primarily used of one thing, and then applying it to another thing that with which we are unfamiliar is easily understood. So for the husbands and wives and the the new husbands and wives, you can turn and say, honey, you're the light of my life. What we're saying by using that metaphor is your wife or your husband, they're not actually a light bulb. They're not a physical light. But what we're saying is, you bring me happiness. You bring me joy. So using that metaphor helps our spouses know how it is that we feel about them. Artisan has spent the last three weeks moving from impersonal to most personal metaphors for God. During week one, we looked at God as a natural object, a light, a rock, a consuming fire, and a shelter or fortress. We pondered on what was reassuring about seeing these images and what was challenging. During week two, we looked at God as a person, a farmer, a vine grower, a warrior, a judge, a king, a shepherd, a ruler. And we continued on this theme of looking at God as a parent last week. Today, we're going to continue to look at God as a person in the form of a reconciler. It is my hope that by the end of this message, we will all move a little bit closer to seeing God as we do see Jesus. God as one who does feel our pain. God as one who does share in our suffering. God as one who is engaged in our lives. To understand what is meant by reconciliation, we have to go back to the beginning, back to the creation and fall. To help us, I turn to the work of Saint Athanasius. His work on the incarnation of the word is an apologetic treatise, and it defends the incarnation of Christ and explains why God chose to approach God's fallen people in human form. Saint Athanasius declares that God had a dilemma. He writes, "This is what holy scripture tells us, proclaiming the command of God, of every tree that is in the garden, thou shalt not eat, but of the tr- shall eat. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. But in the day that you do, you shall surely die." You shall surely die, not just die only, but remain in a state of death and corruption. The law of death which followed the transgression of Adam prevailed upon us, and from it there was no escape. It would, of course, have been unthinkable that God could go back upon his word and that people having transgressed God's law should not die. But it was equally monstrous that beings which once had shared the nature of God, had shared the nature of the word, should perish. Indifference to the ruin of God's own work before God's own eyes would argue not goodness in God, but limitation. It was impossible, therefore, that God should leave us to perish. For it would be unfitting and unworthy of God's character to do so. For God is good and the fountainhead of goodness. So herein is God's dilemma. I'm the fountainhead of goodness. How can I show indifference to the perishing of my people? but also I'm the God of truth, I'm the God of justice, I'm the God of righteousness. How can I go back on my word regarding death as the penalty for sin in order to ensure their continued existence? How can I save my people and still fulfill the requirements of the law of sin and death? It is from God's dilemma that we must see Jesus. We must see Jesus through God. Yet according to our survey results, it's much easier for people to see the kinder aspects of God's character through Jesus. So I'm going to ask us this morning to strive to see Jesus through God. See Jesus through God's dilemma. So what or rather who was needed to acquire the grace, and to recall from the grips of death and corruption, who would step in and do this work for us? Who saved the word of God, the one through whom all things were made? As the creator, the composer, the one without whom nothing was made, as the word of God, Jesus was, in consequence, able to recreate all worthy to suffer on behalf of all, and to be an ambassador for all with God. The word in flesh was the answer to God's dilemma. Seeing Jesus through God's dilemma gives us a perspective of God that is quite different from that 73% of Americans hold. Seeing Jesus through God's dilemma as the answer, as the way for people's existence to continue, but at the same time to meet the requirements of the law, if that reveals a God of John 3 and 16. For God so loved the world that God gave God's only begotten Son, that whomsoever would believe on him would not perish but have everlasting life. The Greek word for so in this verse isn't referring to the high degree of God's love. It is referring to the way in which God is showing love. It is better stated for in this way, God loved the world, that God gave his only son. In the Greek, there are four words used for love, phileo, storge, Eros and agape. Phileo is a love that's rooted in and based on the loveliness or the attractiveness of the object of love. Storge is rooted in having some type of social bond with the object of love, such as a parent and child. Eros is rooted in having a strong desire for the object, which includes romantic love and patriotism. However, agape, the Greek word for love used in this passage, is not rooted in the object of love. It's rooted in the subject. It's rooted in the person doing the loving. It's rooted in the mind and will of the lover. With agape love, therefore, there's no need for the object to be lovely or attractive in any way. There's no need for the one who loves to have any social bond the object of love. There's no need for the one practicing agape to have a strong desire for the object. Agape is different from all the other types of love that agape is not rooted in the object of love. It's rooted in the subject. So the one who expresses agape love makes a decision using inward criteria to esteem, and to cherish, and to relish, to accept, to prize, and to honor the other. Agape is not a sentimental emotion. It is a mental and willful choice to act to the benefit of the other. It is the mental and willful choice to make the sacrifices necessary to extend to the other understanding and redeeming goodwill. Agape love is a decision to value the other so highly as not to give them what they deserve, but what is redeeming and to their benefit. And that is God's nature. It's from love that God responds to his dilemma. And that is the example that we can take from God as a reconciler, as we seek to be ones who reconcile as well. Love is where reconciliation starts. This is where our decision to cross ethnic lines must begin. It must begin with agape. We do not seek to find something lovely or attractive or desirable about the other and use that as a motivator for extending our hand across ethnic lines. Unfortunately, all the isms, the racism, sexism, classism, lead us to assign roles and values and images of communities of color, of women, and persons impacted by poverty that are not flattering and from which we cannot build a sustained relationship. A pastor noticed that his compassion team engaged in providing a hot meal to low-income families in the neighborhood surrounding the church, began to dwindle. When he called his parishioners together, um, they shared they were discouraged because the persons coming to the soup kitchen were the same persons over and over and over again. The pastor soon discovered that they had compassion fatigue that they had begun to pass judgment on the individuals that they were serving and had become bitter, losing heart in the ministry. But 2 Corinthians 5.16 states, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, we do so no longer. We have to look past and no longer look to the latest prevailing socially acceptable and politically correct thinking about a group or about a proper response and assume that as our modus operandi, as reconcilers. Now, a person operating as a reconciler in agape looks to inward criteria, inward motivation to serve, and that is the law written on his or her heart by the almighty God and uses that to fuel action in the community. Christians claim a high order of compassion and relationship, a higher one than the world. But when outsiders look in and view the church, what's different about the social patterns of the world? We reflect every ism, with female clergy experiencing glass ceilings, and the church being the largest body that voluntarily, not by force of law, segregates itself every Sunday morning. If we do decide to seek to be diverse, what exactly will that mean? Is it tolerating or relegating a portion of seats to persons as long as they don't become the majority? and gain power in creating church policy. Peter Ahn, the pastor of an Asian church, he was determined to start to move towards a multiracial church. So when he started the church, when he had the founding people in the room, he said right from the beginning, if you've come and you've come to be a part of an Asian church, then this is not the right church for you. If reconciliation is to be sought, it must be supported from the leadership to the pew. This is the type of love that we are to never stop extending to our neighbor, the one who is not us, the one who is different from us, dissimilar, qualitatively and categorically distinct from us. Also, when we see Jesus through God's dilemma, we see a God who in this way loved us. God not only used the motivation of love to extend his hand, but he then actually became the means of restoration. The word of God assumed a body capable of death in order that the one body through belonging to the word who is above all and creator of all might become in dying a sufficient exchange for all bodies, an offering for every stain, bearing the weight of God's wrath, and thereby abolishing death for all of us by offering an equivalent body. And this is another definition of reconciliation. It is the exchange of coins of equivalent value. But here we're not exchanging coins of equivalent value value, we're exchanging bodies of equivalent value. The one body indwelled by God and every single body here and in the world. The the one body being put to death in place of all the bodies to deliver all from forever living in a state of death and corruption. So we can say like Paul, we find this law at work that when I want to do good, evil is there with me. For in my inner being, I delight in God's law, but I see another law at work in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner of the law of sin at work within my members. What a wretched state, and who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ. As that body would itself remain incorruptible, as it's indwelt by God, the offering of the one body also put an end to our corruption. It put an end to our perishing. It put an end to our moral decay by the grace of the resurrection. Just as the result of one trespass was condemnation for all, so also the result of the one act of righteousness Was justification and life for all. When we see Jesus through God's dilemma, we see a God who loves. We see a God who literally becomes the means of restoration of relationship. And lastly, we see a God who tears down the walls between us and God and between us and one another. Romans 5 declares Therefore, since we are justified, since we are acquitted, since we are declared righteous through faith, let us now grasp that we have peace with God. Ephesians two fourteen and 16 declares, For he himself is our peace, our bond of unity and harmony. He has made both the Jew and the Gentile into one body and has broken down the hostile wall dividing between us. The dividing wall in Ephesians 2.14 is an actual wall in the temple at Jerusalem, beyond which no one was allowed to pass unless they were a Jew. The barrier marked the limit up to which a Gentile might advance, and no farther. This middle wall of partition had a great deal to do with Paul's arrest and imprisonment. It was thought that he had brought Greeks into the temple, and brought them past that barrier. It took the Roman commander and his soldiers to keep the people from tearing Paul into pieces. When this passage was written, this barrier in the temple was still standing, yet the chained prisoner of Jesus Christ was not afraid to write that Christ had torn down, had broken down the wall, and had thus admitted Gentiles who were far off, who were strangers and who were foreigners, to all the privileges and access of God that the Israelites now had. We must understand that we are going to become reconcilers as God has become a reconciler. That the walls that we are tearing down are truly deep-seated and can only be faced through faith in Christ Jesus and with the power of God. The walls that we have today are different from the walls in the New Testament church because they answered two questions when God decided to create this new community of the Jew and the Gentile. The first Christians were Jews who believed that Jesus was the promised Messiah. The church began as an exclusive Jewish sect, with no intention of allowing Gentiles to be members. As the Book of Acts and the Letters of St. Paul reveal, the early church leaders had to face two difficult questions in rapid succession. First, can a Gentile even be a Christian at all? And second, whether they should be allowed to share equally in the life of the church. There was an effort to keep the church pure, which meant it was only for Jews. But Gentiles were believing in Jesus. In Acts 10 we read that Peter learns from a vision that God is no longer does not make any distinctions in the creation between clean and unclean. God's reconciling grace and forgiveness has revealed that the gospel is for everyone. The church is to be radically and unconditionally inclusive. But the issue still wasn't fully resolved as conflict evolved into a power struggle for control of the church, a battle by the church's charter members to maintain power over the newcomers. Those who had wanted to keep the Gentiles out now wanted to control their lives within the church. They insisted that Gentiles become Jews in order to become Christians. The Gentiles would have to be circumcised. They would have to follow all traditional laws regulating diet and lifestyle. Gentiles would have to reject their past cultural identity and assume the identity of a Jew. The early church once again resolved this issue quickly, and determined that Gentiles do not need to become Jews in order to be Christians because of the very first decision that we had become a radical, unconditional, created community and body. Within the church, no ethnic group was to have superiority or dominance, nor could one group determine the behavior for any other group. These two decisions were made by the early church for all time, including our time today. Unfortunately, the church in America did not implement these decisions immediately. In America, in the age of exploration, Europeans used race to explain the differences among people groups and to justify the enslavement, colonization, and genocide of various people groups from which many are still trying to recover. It actually took 300 years before we made a decision if African Americans had a soul to save. And I'm sure that Asians and Native Americans have their own stories to tell. It took too long to decide if African Americans must give up their cultural identity and adopt European culture before they could be considered a Christian. It took too long through slavery and peonage and Jim Crow for communities of color, and so they began to found their own churches, and we have the situation that we have today. Are we now ready to implement the decisions Decisions made very long ago by the early church? As we seek to join God as ministers of reconciliation, to join the church, will persons of other races, of other cultures, will they need to become European Americans first to be welcomed? Will they need to worship in a European style? Will they need to give up their cultural identity in the worship moment? To be reconcilers today, we have to be willing to come into conformity with what Christ has already done on the cross. He has designed and He has reconciled both the Jew and the Gentile into one body in Christ. He has killed the enmity between people groups, and for us, through the power of Christ, to implement that in our churches, in our lifetime. So I leave you looking at God as reconciler. I leave you with the motivation for reconciliation. The motivation is agape, which is not rooted in the object, but it's rooted in love within ourselves. That's rooted in God. I leave you with the means of reconciliation, That we are to give all, even unto death, to extend our hand to our brother and to our sister to implement this creative community that, that God has created through Christ Jesus. And lastly, I leave you with the ministry of reconciliation. God has left us with that ministry to go forward into our communities and to go forward in our churches and to use all of our special gifts, all of our understanding, and all of our submission just to God's spirit to work and to cooperate with God in creating that community where persons of all different people groups do not have to become something else to fit in, but where everyone is appreciated, everyone is valued, and everyone is worshiping God one to the other. So I leave you with a God who is a reconciler, a God who is good, a God who is loving, a God who is engaged, a God who is here and has torn down the walls, not just between us, but the walls between us and him, and is looking and has passed on to us that mantle now, to be him here in the world. Thank you. I'd like to open up the communion table to all that are here. Again, as we learn, the partition has been torn down. Um, there is no partition between us. It's been settled by the early church. We are all welcome to the table. All those who profess faith in Christ are welcome to receive at the communion table. Uh, We use intinction here, where you can take a piece of bread and dip it into the wine or the juice. We leave it to you um, to choose whether you like to use the wine or the juice. And the communion table is open now to all. For more information, visit us at artisanchurch.com.